0: You're listening to Fundraising Radio, a podcast about fundraising for early-stage startups. The major rule that we follow here is no bullshit on these podcasts. No music to relax you, no advertisements of our sponsors. We only talk about fundraising here and nothing else. So let's jump into the episode. And today as a guest speaker, we have Daniel McCarthy, co-founder at Zodiac that was acquired by Nike in 2018, and currently he's a director and co-founder at Theta Equity Partners, and also an assistant professor of marketing at Emory University. And today we'll talk about both of his current roles and that previous acquisition by night, how it happened, how he got there. And of course, we'll talk about fundraising. So Daniel, let's kick it off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Zodiac.
1: Yes, it's great to be with you. Yes, as you mentioned, I'm uh, a Kind of wearing 2 hats now the 1st is as a uh, ivory tower academic, So I'm a assistant professor of marketing at Emory University. I teach a class on customer lifetime valuation to. Undergraduates and uh, MBA students here and in addition to that, uh, I also have I've been bitten by the entrepreneurial bug. So. Uh, I've started uh, 2 companies, you know, 1 of which I'd sold to Nike in March of 2018 uh, the subsequent month I had. Started another company called Theta Equity Partners. Uh, both companies are again. Uh, their focus is basically leveraging customer level predictions to better understand the health of a company. Uh, the former company, Zodiac, it primarily used customer level predictions to help marketing departments make uh, tactical marketing decisions. You know, so who to send the mail or to. And then Theta Equity Partners, it's. Uh, using similar predictive models, but instead of using it to understand who's in the mail or 2. It's using it to understand uh, whether, say, like a private equity firm or a venture capital firm uh, should move forward with a, an investment in a particular company. And so. You know, the way that we'll go about an analysis like that is, you know, basically by better understanding the unit you know, economic health of the firm. And you know, So what is customer lifetime value? You know, what is CAC? How they've been evolving. Across cohorts and over time. And, uh, and how is it different across different you know, kind of customer segments or slices, you know, say different acquisition channels or whatnot? So, yes, it's all kind of, you know, both my research, my teaching, and uh, the entrepreneurial activities, they all revolve around customer-level predictions. So, um, it's really an area that uh, I'm virtually spending all my all my waking hours studying.
0: Nice. That's, that's really cool. Uh, so, first question is going to be about the model itself. So, I personally, not... Not the biggest fan, but I kind of like that model of prediction. So let's, let's go a little bit in depth into this. So how exactly does it work? Do you look at some, you know, let's say 10 or 15 or 20 metrics of a firm and you're like, okay, that firm is going to keep doing well in the upcoming two or three years, or is it somehow different?
1: Now, the main thing that we mine is the transaction log so i'm not a big fan of of watch what they say i'm a big fan of watch what they do and and basically you can think of customer-based corporate valuation as exploiting an accounting identity that all revenue has to come from customers and those customers have to place orders and the customers uh, either had to have been acquired in in the current period or they had to have been retained from a prior period and so basically we'll take kind of historical data on the flow of uh, customer acquisitions over time, uh, customer retention, uh, customer purchasing while customers are with the firm, and then the amount that's spent on purchases and uh, essentially train a series of predictive models uh, off the historical data to predict future acquisition, retention, ordering, and spend. And so my, my PhD was formerly in statistics at the Wharton School. And uh, I found that to be a really helpful background for this sort of work because Mm -hmm. one of the first things that we'll always do is you you don't want to just have to trust the model. And uh, so we'll always subject it to very, um, very tough predictive validation checks where we say, let's leave off the last six months, one year, two years of data. And let's imagine that we didn't get to see it. Let's predict what we would have thought would happen over that period of time, and then compare our predictions to what we actually observe. And it's only after we do uh, really well uh, along those predictive validation checks that we would have the confidence that we're adequately capturing the the behaviors that are worth capturing.
0: Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah. So if you, if you stick with the model all the time, you will end up like uh, that, that firm long-term capital management. That that epic story, by the way, everyone who has not heard that story, definitely read a book on it. It's just super fun. So um, let's go a little bit even more in depth. How do you extract that information? Do you just source some particular base like Crunchbase or PitchBook? Or where do you get that information on the company? Or is it like when the company applies for funding from uh, the Theta equity partners, they have to submit all the data? Or how, how does that data collection basically works?
1: It's a great question. There's kind of two main sources and it really depends on the company that we're performing diligence on. Um, the first is we'll often get the data. Directly or indirectly supplied by the company itself. And so, you typically, you know, we won't invest ourselves. You know, we're, we're primarily just a research outfit. Uh, but we'll perform this work on behalf of, you know, say a private equity or venture capital firm. And so, um, you know, they'll express interest they they may you know, have moved to the letter of intent phase and uh, often at that phase uh, these companies will provide a whole bunch of data in the data room and, um, and many of them a surprisingly large number of them will put pretty much the full transactional history and crm data in there so assuming that they do uh, we can run mm-hmm. a series of models you know, right out, you know, basically semi-automatically. And we, we probably run models uh, trained on transaction log data for, call it 200, 300 different companies. Um, so that model is, you know, pretty much ready to go right out of the starting gate. The other type of data structure that we'll often encounter is um, when we're doing work on public companies. And for them, the sort of data that we get to observe are public disclosures that come from SEC filings and investor presentations. Mm-hmm. And so they'll give summary measures, you know, such as, you know, our, our net dollar retention rate was X or the number of active customers that we have is Y or the total number of orders that we place was Z. And we'll basically have to play this game of, of triangulating our way into, you know, what were the acquisition, retention, ordering and spend patterns? that are most consistent with this aggregated data. So yeah, those are basically the two kind of polar extremes. Uh, there's then a number of other circumstances where it's kind of in the middle. And so it could be, you say we're doing work on behalf of a private equity firm. They didn't put the full transactional data into the data room, but maybe they put in something that's you kind of a lot richer than we would normally see in SEC filings. So yeah, there are shades of gray, but uh, you typically it's going to be some combination of uh granular and and aggregate data
0: Mm-hmm. right that's really interesting so last question on uh data equity partners and then we'll move on to zodiac uh would you invest in what stage do you generally invest in and yeah, that's the those are the only two
1: <laughs> yeah so we don't um you know we won't make investments ourselves it's really more a function of the you know the, the client need so you know, we've done work on companies as large as, you know, Slack, Dropbox, uh, the major telecom firms. Um, again, those are all public company examples. Uh, but we've even done some diligences uh, on behalf of public companies, uh, extremely large ones, where we were, you know, under strict NDA. So, um, so we've done work on you know, companies as big as the biggest that are out there. Um, we've also done work on companies that are are very small and um, yeah you know, it could be a private equity firm that's looking at you know a company that's been in commercial operations for you know call it four or five years you know, they may have you know, not a whole lot of data on customers that are are really tenured um you know that's kind of scraping at the kind of the maximum that we're able to stretch our models to handle Um so yeah, I'd say the the typical company is going to be somewhere in between. You know, call it a company that's been around for, you know, five, ten years, got a whole bunch of customers. Yeah, you know, so we feel comfortable with the volume and quantity of, of of data, um, but not not super small and not super large.
0: Right. That's that's great. So now let's go back to the zodiac and Let's start with the fundraising for it. So, first question is: Did you raise any money for that company?
1: Yeah. So we, uh, you know, we had a a seed round uh, that was led by uh, first round capital. You know, you may have heard of, (laughs) um, as well as uh, Felicis Ventures and uh, a VC firm that had been known as Metamorphic. Uh, They they had rebranded now; they're known as uh, Compound VC. So, um, you said first round. It was, you know, Josh Koppelman, who kind of runs the show there, who, who led uh led on their side. And um uh, and at Felicis, it was uh Iden Sencut who um again he's kind of the the top dog over there. So it's been really a you know, kind of premier uh VC backing. Um very, very fast growing. We um we had a term sheet for the A round uh on our desk when uh, we basically had gotten a, a better offer from from Nike. So um basically we it was an offer that we, we couldn't turn down you know, because of you know, just our obligation, our fiduciary obligations to our, our stakeholders. But, um. Yeah, so we didn't go beyond that that stage, but, uh, but certainly, you know, we were very much, you know, kind of your. Kind of traditional venture backed high growth startup company.
0: Nice. So let's start this fundraising discussion with the question: When did the fundraising for Zodiac start? So when was the moment when you were like, "Okay, now we're going to go out and raise money from actual investors"?
1: Uh, it was relatively early on, you know, because we knew that we, you know, we needed we needed to invest in our growth, and um, and we would not be able to, to bootstrap that growth. So yeah, you know, there were some investments in. Primarily in hiring headcount, that um, you know, if we didn't have that money, it would have been very hard to have been able to to get where where we needed to be, you to kind of hit that critical mass for the business where we could then you kind of move to the next stage of of our revolution. So, um, yeah, so it was it was quite early on that uh, that we had kind of made that decision
0: hmm So early on, how early on was it pre-revenue? Do you have some sort of product? So basically, what was your major selling point when you were talking to investors? You were saying like, you know, we have X, Y, Z, that's why you should invest. So what was that X, Y, Z that investors really liked?
1: Uh, thankfully, at that point, you know, we had the luxury of having been revenue generating and we had a few nice, nice. client relationships that we could, you know, kind of be able to brag about <laughs> so, um, so yeah it was a little bit easier to sell in that way <clears throat> right right that's that's always like that so
0: question about customers now how did you manage to acquire the customers so early on so do you really have some pre-existing relationship with them prior to starting zodiac or do you actually reach out to them or what, what was that you know, connection how did you make it
1: yeah it was uh basically you know kind of out of relationships that we had at the time yeah, so uh, you know, Pete Fader, he's uh, he was my co-founder at Zodiac, and he's my co-founder again at Theta. Um, we, he has a, an amazing. He he's basically built up, you know, a lot of relationships over his thirty-year tenure at uh, at the Wharton School. So, um you know, so there are a lot of people who you know really, really, really respect uh, all the work that he's done. You know, the path-breaking work in customer lifetime value research. So, yeah, so to be able to, you know, kind of get it from the source, you know, I think a lot of people found that to be, um, you know, something that they wanted to try. So, so that was really helpful. I, I would say kind of in general, um, we found that thought leadership has been very, um, it's worked very well for us as a, a source of kind of getting prospects through the acquisition funnel. Um, so, you know, whether it's, you know, hosting webinars or putting out blog content. Yeah, you know, put out a lot of content on social media as well. Um, really nice way of, of being able to, you know, kind of establish credibility, and keep people kind of in your orbit, and uh, and then kind of when when that right time happens where they have a deal or you know they, they got the green light from from their boss to you know, to move forward with some sort of a project that that you might be relevant for. Yeah, you know, that uh, you'll kind of be top of mind and uh, and be be part of the the consideration set
0: mm-hmm. right right so um i'm wondering if we should talk a little more about customer acquisition or move on to the exit mm, let's 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 take one more question about customer acquisition so uh Mm. Once you got that first funding, you know how what was your major strategy of getting new customers because that's basically one of the major struggles of every single startup you know how do I get more customers in? how do I scale that process? So how did that work out for you when you couldn't really you know leave off your previous connections and you had to acquire actually new connections completely off um, from scratch
1: yeah, that's kind of the the crossing of the Rubicon that um the inbound that we get just by virtue of having those relationships, you know, that, you know, that'll run out. <laughs> and so <laughs> you really have to move to a sustainable kind of outbound strategy, you know, for people who who don't know us and they're not aware of our reputation and, and the CLV work that we've done. Um, I'd say, you know, we kind of had a, a few ways of going about it and it, it worked reasonably well. Um, so we still had a bunch that was coming in through, you know, the relationships, but, um, it was really kind of this multi-pronged approach of really beefing up our, our content marketing. You know, so we had a lot of really nice materials that we had created um, to you know, to be able to, to give people a good sense of what we do and to very quickly establish we are not just another martech vendor. You know, we know that if you're speaking with a CMO at any reasonably sized company, they're probably getting hit with like thirty random spammy martech inbound uh emails a day <laughs> and so oh yeah um and, and that's probably an understatement um so to be able <laughs> to, to kind of establish that we are not them um you know that that's an important first step and so being able to kind of look to the you know the academic credibility that we built up yeah, you know, i think that, that that that's an important di- differentiator um So, yeah, for us, I'd say, you know, content, content, content was a big piece of it. You know, we were more aggressive on uh, webinars. Uh, We had really nice blog content. We had hired somebody who uh, did a really nice job of putting together uh, articles for us, because obviously one of the other things is, you know, I was the chief statistician of the firm and and Pete, you know, we both have uh, a lot of other obligations, both to the business and as professors. So we can't just spend all day writing blog content, and so like other <laughs> right? people, yeah, it's just uh, if you could kind of more quickly scale the content creation, where it still has the, yeah, you know, yep, that's Pete, you know, but um, but is being, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the legwork is being done by by somebody else. Um, that's invaluable, you know, from a scaling perspective. So yes, the content was a big piece of it, and that that really did help, you know, kind of generate. Generate leads. Um, the other one was, and this was kind of to help get people from uh, kind of being leads to to working them um, all the way down through to the acquisition, was uh, hiring a couple people to help uh, to help with outbound sales. So yeah, I won't say that we had had it kind of fully nailed down by the time that we had sold to to Nike. But, um, but we had been doing a reasonably good job of being able to, to go to people that we didn't know and, um, and to, to be able to get them to respond to our emails <laughs> and uh, <laughs> take that first call. And if we had that first call lined up and, you know, you had someone like Pete or myself or one of the other co-founders on the team, you know, on it, that um, that, that would be enough to at least be able to show that person there's something here that's special. And uh, I think mm-hmm. that, that that was, I think, what we needed to, to be able to actually get sales from these people who we otherwise didn't know.
0: Nice. That's really cool. So first question is going to be, first follow-up question here is going to be about content creation. Then we're going to move on a little bit, talk about sales. But content creation, that's another big, huge trend. Uh, recently, it's been paying off great for multiple firms. But you know, multiple startup founders are trying to focus on that and it doesn't really give them anything in return for the amount of time that they spend there. So what's your advice to early stage startup founders? What kind of content would you recommend them create? You know, how good are the webinars uh, how, or, or blog posts or, you know, podcasts? Or what do you think is basically the best content type for early stage startup founders?
1: I wish I had a strong answer, a strong opinion. I'd say we've been spoiled. Um, I'd say the issue that a lot of founders have, and I'm not trying to to be mean here, but they have no credibility. You know, they've they may have done something in the past, but um, they're not a domain. They're not necessarily a, a domain expert. Um, so, so being able to kind of go to people who. We'll spend five seconds looking at you, and to get them to say, "This person is credible." Um, that's kind of the first major hurdle. And mm-hmm. um, and being, you know, say like a thirty year, you know, Wharton marketing faculty, just it immediately establishes credibility. You know, a lot, if a lot of the pioneering work on customer lifetime value has been done by that person, um, that's a really great starting point so we would kind of leverage that as best we could um and that's why you know, i i don't know if other companies would necessarily have the sort of um the sort of lead generation that we did uh, you know, so in general my 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 view for everybody is you really want to play to your strengths and not try to make weaknesses strengths um it's just a lot easier to let your winners run and for us you know, one of the things that we just had the, the good fortune of, of being able to rely upon was you know people would resonate and you know, our content would resonate with people so you know, we just kind of kept doing it
0: nice yep that's that's a good way to go so now about sales uh you mentioned that you know if you managed to get on the call with the potential with the leads basically the deal was closed so where do you get to learn how
1: to
0: your probability. <laughs> course, but what do you think what do you think taught you the best, you know, how to make those calls, how to make those sales? Because that's another struggle for many, many founders, because like half of them are technical, another half are you know finance focused and 0.1% of them are really good at sales. So the other 99.99% are heavily struggling with sales. What what would you recommend there? Is there you know, some particular book you would recommend them to read or webinars to attend or anything to practice their sales basically?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I keep going. I know I'm gonna sound like a bro- broken record again, but you know, play to your strengths and not to your weaknesses. Um, you know, For me, it was uh, get the right people on the call with you. I know that i'm I'm a technical geek, and um and that's what I excel at. and so i'll I'll be helpful on a call for establishing credibility. And if we have another data scientist on the line that they can tell, you know, I'm not making this stuff up. and um and that that's kind of my role on the call. Um, certainly, hopefully exactly. I can do more than that, but <laughs> but I'll be the first to say I'm, I'm not a salesperson. And so um, so I would rather make sure that I've got a, a really good salesperson on my team and uh, and have that person on that call so that when we get to that part of the conversation that they take over. Because you know, otherwise, um, I'm just not going to do as good a job as, as they would. And it's kind of doubly bad that even if I was just as good as that person, you know, I've, I've got a number of other hats that I'm wearing, including literally specifying entirely new models that we need to develop for, for clients. And so I need to be off those calls, or at least I need to be not, you know, kind of the main point of contact for sales. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: So, yeah, so so I think, you know, we, we did a reasonably good job of being able to find people who, you know, could actually fill that that sales role. Um, the other thing I would say is, you know, our business is, is really technical. You know, we basically have algorithms that we, uh, make available to, uh, to corporate clients. And so, um, so being able to communicate something like customer lifetime value, you know, that that's tricky. Um, and that's why it really wasn't, um, it wasn't simple to find to find that just right person because salespeople, they won't necessarily, or they almost certainly won't have the sort of technical background that they need to really speak very, very intelligently you know, about, <laughs> about the quantitative aspects. And so it's really finding that person who, you know, even though they don't quite have that background, that they still understand in general, what's going on enough that that they can communicate the value proposition effectively. Mm -hmm.
0: Right, that they can
1: sound smart and intelligent, as you said. So uh,
0: now let's talk about the acquisition, the exit of uh, the Zodiac. So how did that happen? How did you get that proposal from Nike?
1: Uh, well, that yeah, we start venturing into territory where I don't want to trip over any non-disclosure uh, <laughs> constraints. Hundred percent, no, no specifications. Basically,
0: I'll, I'll actually narrow down this question a little bit. So, did you already have? Did you like aim for that exit? Did you prepare? Did you try to reach out to those big firms that were potential acquirers, or
1: did you just randomly stumble upon one? Yeah, basically, yeah. What had happened was, you know, we we knew that we were we needed that next round of funding. And so, yes, you know, so the A round was, was moving forward. And that's really, I think that that's what we had been planning for. We didn't expect to, to be acquired by, you know, a strategic customer of ours. Um, so that really just kind of happened without our really having proactively pushed for it. And as you could imagine, you know, we, and this kind of goes back to, to our value proposition, you know, we, we take in transactional data and we use it to make customer level predictions. And so the sort of business that that would resonate the most with, you know, we would have thought you know, it'd be like a Google or a Salesforce or Shopify, or maybe some really large, purely, you know, direct to consumer business because they have full transactional granularity. They, they, they view all the activity of their customers. If someone had said, you know, it's going to be Nike, you know, I would have said you're crazy <laughs> cuz you know they they had basically cut their teeth as a company that sells through distribution partners. Um, mm-hmm. and so they didn't have customer level visibility. So they they wouldn't have, have even been able to have run our models call it 25 years ago. Or they would have run it on an exceedingly small proportion of their business. Now, you know, they've been making this big pivot towards direct to consumer, um, but you know, it's still kind of a growing part of their business. Um, so, you know, so in retrospect, it makes a lot of sense you know, that they would want to, to beef up their capabilities in this area, but it was definitely not something that we were planning for.
0: Mm-hmm. Nice. I love hearing those stories, you know, of random kind of acquisitions. So let's go back to more of a current situation. So as an exit founder, do you do any mentorship or angel investments in earlier stage uh, startups?
1: Yeah, I do. Um, Yeah, I'd say I've primarily been pursuing the angel investing. Um, On the advisory front, yeah, I wanted to make sure to be fully respectful of you know, my obligations to Nike as part of the acquisition. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, so so basically that that's that hasn't really been an opportunity that that I pursued. Um, but yeah, you know, certainly uh, in terms of angel investing, there's been a number of of wonderful opportunities that uh, thankfully I've been able to to be a part of. So um, yeah, happy to talk through some of those stories.
0: Sure, we will not really go through the stories as I don't want to run over thirty minutes, but. Quickly let's go over what you like to invest and what stage. That's just for my listeners, in case if someone who's listening to this is a good fit for you, Daniel. And yeah, so first those two questions.
1: Yeah, for, for, for good or for bad, I'm gonna find out in, in like five years. <laughs> uh it's been all seed investing. So yes, yeah, the companies that are typically uh definitely post revenue, um, where I've had the opportunity to see very clear evidence of product market fit and of unit economics. Um I have not I've I've done angel investing in both B2B and B2C companies. So yes, the B2B versus B2C, that's not really a distinction that um you know, I've I've cared about as much. You know, for mm-hmm. me and again this goes back to customer based corporate valuation. I'd like to see strong evidence that the incremental rate of return on newly acquired customers is uh, is very, very good right now, or if it's not very, very good right now, there's a very clear rationale as to why it's going to, you know, transformatively get better, um, you know, say in the near term. So, I really, I practice what I preach in terms of, you know, making customer lifetime value front and center in uh, in my own investment decisions. So uh, So, that's kind of how I've been approaching some of the investments that I've made.
0: Got it. So yeah. Now quick question about some positivity. I would just want to add some positivity to this particular episode and ask you a question of, you know, is there anything in your portfolio that's performing just super well after the pandemic hit or, you know, something you're really proud of or some really interesting investment that you would like to share with the listeners?
1: Yeah, there's one I think that would be, there's really, there's two that I feel I have to mention. Um, There's a company called Pipe. And a company called Wear clouds Um, pipe they. They basically help uh, SaaS firms monetize customer contracts. And again, this goes back to customer lifetime value again, (laughs) Um, but essentially imagine that you're a firm like slack and you've got uh, a new contract with a company like Lyft. A lot of companies like slack will offer these juicy discounts to encourage people onto annual contracts. Um, but if you were to just look at the, the revenue stream, the value of it is very, very large. And so wouldn't it make sense to be able to effectively uh, extend capital against that contract? And so that's what Pipe does is they, they'll extend funding uh, against customer contracts. So it's not a factoring arrangement. It's actually lending against revenue that may not be booked. Um, so that concept, I think is just amazing that that's the future of yep. customer lifetime value work. Um, so they've, they've been growing extremely quickly. And um, I think they're they're moving into more of a, a middleman sort of position in the, in the value chain, you know, where they're just kind of helping link potential investors in those SaaS contracts with, with the SaaS firms. Um, so growing like gangbusters, I think, um, I think the world of them and the team uh where clouds is the other one they basically are a distributed logistics company and uh and so what they do is they help e-commerce firms uh get the the product that they need uh shipped out through um kind of non-traditional uh distribution through non-traditional distribution channels so instead of having to ship out your goods through a company like UPS uh instead they have a, a series of, of people that you could think of them as kind of like Uber or Lyft, where mm-hmm. um, you know, they'll establish relationships with these people. The product is stored in these people's houses or facilities and they'll be shipped from there. And so the product, the, the distribution uh centers are effectively like right next to to where the the customers might be. Right. So it's much lower ship times, much cheaper. Um uh, and so they've been—they've uh, also been growing really, really quickly. So they're very young, but uh, I think that they have a, a really, really bright future ahead of them.
0: That's a really nice concept. Personally, love it. Uh, and I'll make sure to leave links to both of those companies that you mentioned, and probably to uh, to Theta Equity Partners, of course. I'll leave a link to that as well. And now. We're moving on to the last question of today's episode which is a call to action so daniel what's the one thing you want the listener to do as soon as the episode is over
1: Well, certainly if, if you're a, a company i would definitely love to to speak with you about you know how we could potentially uh, work together so um so certainly you know very early stage yeah i think the the, the price point of of data equity partners may be a little high but um you know, we're in the process of putting together uh, software that will make uh, access to these sort of models uh, very quickly and easily available to you. And I think the, the awesome. scale and self-service nature of that product um, you know, could, could make it very much worth your while. I think most companies, especially if you're very young, you have so, you're wearing so many hats and you're trying to do so many things that... You may know that customer lifetime value and unit economics are important, but you just don't have the the time and the staff to be able to really understand it. And so, I think both, you know, from a, a, fun, a potential fundraising standpoint, and from just a day to day management standpoint, you really owe it to yourself to understand where you are. and um, And we we love to to be able to help you with that.
0: Absolutely. That's just awesome. And once once that product is ready, definitely keep me up and I'll make sure to announce that on Fundraising Radio. So people uh, keep listening to the episodes. That's going to be my call to action. Keep listening to Fundraising Radio, of course. And once at the end of one episode, you will hear the announcements of uh, data equity partners finishing their product. That's going to be really helpful for you. So do that. Check the description of this episode and have a good day.